Welcome to the Running Explained podcast. I'm your host, Elizabeth. I'm a marathoner, coach, and answer seeker. When I first started running at the age of 29, I had so many questions and what felt like nowhere to turn to for answers. And now I'm here to answer all your running questions about anything that you might want to know. If you're a new runner or you've been doing this for a long time, there's always something more to learn about running. So let's get started. Hey everyone, welcome to episode three of season three of the Running Explained podcast. My guest this week is Shannon Mulcahy of Mulcahy Performance Consulting. What is she? She is right in the title of of her company. Um, Shannon is a performance consultant. She's a performance coach. So she helps athletes train their minds just like they train their bodies. And anybody who spent any time playing any sort of sport understands the inextricably linked role that our the mental side of our sport plays in our physical performance as well. So if you've ever thought to yourself in a workout or in a race or just on an everyday run, you know, why can't I do this? Why do I seem to quit when the going gets tough? Why are why do my thoughts turn negative? How can I turn this around? How can I harness the power of my mind to lift my performance. Uh, we are going to talk about all of that today and a really great introduction to really performance of, you know, psychology and sport, um, sports psychology and performance mindset, kind of mental strength, all of those things. If you are curious about how this works and where to start, this conversation is for you. Shannon, welcome to the show. I'm excited to have you here. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be here. So before we get started, I want to know, how did you become a runner? Yeah, so I grew up swimming. Uh, so my background is very much in swimming. And when I was in college, I got very injured. And I, you know, went from swimming 20 hours a week to basically being on bed rest. And I needed something to do uh, once I was kind of cleared to exercise after surgery. And I just, the only thing that I really could do was run. So I like, like any like novice runner, like just threw on some random pair of sneakers, went running in my crazy hilly like neighborhood and just was like trying to bust out like super fast times. I don't know what that was, but I was running at 100% effort for the whole like two or three miles. Thought I was going to die, but then was like, wonder if I can do that better. (laughs) And it like my competitive brain just rolled with it. And eventually we got, we got smarter. Um, But it kind of just, I naturally needed something to do. And it's like, hmm, this is kind of fun. And then it took. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So your experience of being um, a swimmer and then transitioning to running, like I'm assuming there's a whole like why you do what you do these days is fed by your experience personally. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I will be um, transparent and say, I do not super identify as a runner these days. I kind of had more of a running phase. And then once I was cleared to swim again. So for some context, I had a weird shoulder ish type injury as a lot of swimmers do. Um, so I couldn't swim for a while. I found running and then I kind of found triathlon when someone was like, Hey, actually you can combine this, just get a bike. So I have, I go through, I think like every two or three years I go through cycles where I'll do like a short, like a, a couple years of running, then a couple years of triathlon, then a couple years of swimming and just kind of like bounce around within the sports. Um, so I have definitely had my runner days. I'm more in a swimming phase right now, but um, it's kind of fun being able to like navigate all of it. But yeah, it's all all influenced. 
I, I love that though. I mean, I think that's, and there are people who are like, I only want to run. I have no interest in doing anything else. I don't even I have no interest in even cross training. Like I'll barely go for a walk. I just want to run. And then you have a lot of people who are thinking, well, I do enjoy these other activities. I do want to do this and what you're describing. And we'll get into a lot of different stuff. I'm sure touching on this topic, but you're like, I naturally find myself in seasons of life where I'm doing one of more or one of the other, or one of this third thing. And that's completely normal. And it works. Yep. Yeah, Absolutely. So today we're talking about, oh man, we're going to open the Pandora's box here. Talking about, well, let me ask you this. What do you do? What is a performance consultant? What do you do? Yeah. So I, I am a sports psychology consultant. So I always tell people up front, like the easiest way to summarize it is I help athletes with their mindset in the same way that a coach is going to train your body. And I know there's more that goes into that, but essentially like training the body for the, for the endeavor and for the race. I'm helping you with training your mind. Um, I think for those people that are maybe new to sports psychology or don't know much about it, uh, I do think it's important to distinguish that there's kind of two sides of sports psychology. One is more the performance side, which is helping with things like goal setting and visualization and your self-talk, awareness, like attention, so many different things. And then there is more of a clinical side to it, which that is not the realm that I fall in, but it is important to distinguish that there that type of person, you know, a clinical psychologist is going to be very helpful for those athletes who are struggling with more clinical issues. Um, it's just very important to also know that like some of us in sports, like are not, are not qualified to help you with, <laughs> with like your eating disorder or with, you know, depression and some of the other stuff going on. So it's can be a little confusing at times kind of separating that out. Um, but I am strictly performance. How do I get you to perform at your best as consistently as possible? The, one of the, you know, kind of pithy quotes about running performance is that running is, what is it, like 90% physical and the other half is mental or like 90% mental the other half is physical, like that, the, especially when we're talking about endurance performance, mm-hmm. um, it, there is an inextricable and, 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 and still being researched. We don't quite know exactly about a lot of this stuff, but there is an inextricable link that what you're trying to do is both physical and mental in, in the endeavor. And I don't think a lot of people realize that, that it's not, and then we'll talk about kind of people who think it's all mental and it's not you, that is physical as well. Um, but, but it, that minds, the mental component and whatever we call it mindset or, um, is, is integral to what you're trying to do as a performance athlete, whatever your performance goals are, your performance goals may be to just feel good (laughs) and run for X distance. Your performance goals may be hyper-specific in a time way, but you cannot take out, you cannot ignore the role that mind mental mindset plays in this. Yeah. And something that I uh, love to do when I do workshops with teams, especially like high school and college teams, is I start off by having them break into small groups and I go, I want you guys to just discuss, there's no right or no wrong answer here, but like what percent of your sport or performance is mental versus physical? And they have to come up with their answers, but then they have to kind of discuss as a larger group. And it's funny because I see them kind of answer it for each other of someone will go like, oh, it's only 10% mental. And then someone else is like, well, no, of course not, because these other things are included in it. And they're like, oh, like, it's just so fascinating for me to watch. Like, I, I just love kind of all of it with sports, like, but seeing them, you know, ration through, like, even the the tactical side of things, even the technique of things, 
you are thinking about your technique often and they're like, I never considered that. And then, you know, it's, it's the whole thing, but yeah, there's definitely that mix. And this idea that mindset, um, is a skill that we can build. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really tough for a lot of people when they, they, we do something and we'll, I'm going to use running specific examples because <laughs> this is a running specific yeah. podcast, you know, but you have somebody who, um, let's say whenever they race a 5k, they totally break down in mile two and they just, you know, with their pr- training properly, they genuinely think they're pacing themselves correctly, but they hit that rough patch, that no man's land in mile two, where you're, you're <laughs> still a long way from the finish and it's really starting to hurt. And something like in them just goes, I give up. Right. And so that, that is, and we'll talk about performance, you know, physical versus mental performance, but that is an example of mindset. And that is actually something, believe it or not, that can be addressed and, I want to say fixed, but, uh, potentially changed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think some of it is even just getting, getting athletes to understand that that is true. And some of it from what I see is kind of, there's no like clear answer on this, but whether people grew up do, like doing sports or not, I think has a little bit of impact. Whereas if you're taught this from a younger age, it's easier to kind of know as you're an adult athlete, like, oh, hey, even if I don't, you know, I feel this way now, it can be changed. Like, I see a ton of people that kind of with confidence are like, I'm either confident or I'm not. And even just getting them to understand that it's something that you can work on and build and it might come hard, you know, it might be hard for you to build that confidence. But if you think you can't change it, it's going to be really hard to really do anything at all with that. So that's kind of step one. Like you can change. <laughs> it is possible. Step one. Yes. yes. Change is possible. <laughs> yes. Um, before we kind of dive in and keep going in this, I want to talk about this concept of like mental toughness as the only thing that matters. Um, and I think sometimes there is messaging around this from social media or just the way that people communicate that the only thing standing between you and your goals is just how badly you want it and how hard you can push. <laughs> and that if you, if you something, you know, in the race or whatever, in the workout, I see there's a lot of workouts too. Oh, the reason I didn't hit the pace is because I wasn't able to push hard enough. Mentally, I just broke down. And then I'll look at their stats as a one-on-one coaching. I'll look at them and be like, no, 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 you, you hit a limit. Like you physically hit a limit. There's no mind setting your way out of your physical limit. And I think, so for some people, it's kind of like where they're on the one end of the spectrum or the other. Sometimes we come to this and think it's hundred percent physical. Our mindset is, is what it is. And there's nothing we can do to change it. Um, and the other side of the spectrum is, well, my mindset is the only thing that is preventing me from doing what I want to do. Um, and through mindset, all things can be done. And like, neither of those is true. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no. Um, I, yeah, I could talk about this for quite long, quite a long period. Please do. <laughs> but yeah, it's, I think it, on the same lines as I was just saying with something like confidence, just cause that's like the super easy example that I see a lot, but getting people to understand that yes, change is possible. You talk about something like growth mindset, right? Like it's not it's not just I have it or I don't, we can grow, we can change. But I think people need to understand that it's over time. And that's, I think where social media is kind of influencing things in a not great way. And especially when you see like those reels where it'll show like a clip from each month. And even though you can process like 
it was a whole year or months of that. It looks like this, this change. And I, I trust me, I love social media. I'm not here to tell, like say it's bad, but it can create this kind of like illusion that it's easy to make these changes and it happens very quickly. I, I mean, nobody really knows exactly what their physical limit is. And I, I really am a person like, I trust me, like I'm a swim coach and I get a lot of my swimmers who will be like, I can never do that. I'm like, we don't really know what you can and can't do, but you probably can't do that today. And there's, there has to be the element of what is the work required in order to get yourself to that point. For me right now, I haven't really run a lot in a while. Like it's mostly for triathlon and cross training. If someone were to be like, can you run a three hour marathon? My first instinct is going to go never. And then I'm going to go, I haven't actually really tried to do that. So I don't have that answer. I can guarantee you today that's not going to happen. <laughs> not even close. Next year, I don't know, but I can work towards it eventually. But there has to be the the work that goes into those things. We can't just go, oh, I'm, I'm going to will myself to do these things. And that's where I think social media is kind of like, don't quit. You can do all these crazy motivational things that are maybe a little too motivational. <laughs> yeah. Or like all you have to do is just want it. And it, not that I see this a lot. It's funny you talk yeah. about goal setting. I know it's a whole separate conversation as well, but like I generally speaking, you know, I f- see athletes fall into three camps when it comes to goal setting. Um, either their, their big goals are really not that big at all. Like they're big to them, but those, like when we're talking about the big goals, that five, seven, 10 year goal, where is my true limit? All of athletes come to me and say, I want to run, let's say for example, a four hour marathon. Cause that's a really common popular goal. Mm-hmm. And for most of those runners, that's a goal that we would reasonably achieve in the next one to two years. And so when I'm talking about like their goals aren't big enough, it's like, that's what I'm talking about. What's the, the, the big goal. Like you might not ever get there, but it's that big, scary goal. And like you said, I don't think most people ever understand what their true limit is. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I have a bunch of runners who like have a reasonable understanding of where they are and what they're trying to do. And then at the very end of the spectrum, this has only happened to me a hand, not even a handful, probably less than four times where I've worked with an athlete and they say, this is my big goal. And I say, statistically, that is highly improbable that that will ever be something you achieve. Like they have just this complete misunderstanding of where they're starting from and where they're trying to get to. And I think that that kind of, I mean, for whatever reason, some of this, if you believe that you can achieve it, messaging is where it comes in. Like I had a runner come to me and say they wanted to qualify for the Olympics in like the 5,000 meter. And they were a 28 minute 5k runner. 28 minutes is a great time for a 5k, but it is a far cry from the Olympic qualifying standard for the 5k. Like I can't even tell you, like, unless this person is literally an untapped beyond, you know, undiscovered running potential, it's not going to happen. Right. But they're like, but I want this. I'm like, you could want it all you want, but it's just highly unlikely that it's ever going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And I think something that kind of goes into that conversation as well is just like the resources available for these things. And that's, it can open another kind of box, but it does make it really challenging. Like there are people that are really talented that maybe they, if you're working a full-time job and you don't have, I know that can a little bit be an excuse, a little bit not, but like whether you don't have the hours or you look at what at that level, right? Like making an Olympic team, you look at what those athletes are doing and how they're spending their day. And like the people just on their support staff, all of those things, we don't have, I don't have access to that kind of people and stuff. You know, that's not, I don't really have that available to me. And it sometimes makes, I've had, you know, thoughts myself before of 
if I had all of that, what, you know, what would stuff look like? But there's so much more that goes into some of those very high level things that, yeah, when we just are like, I would like to do this at some point. I know I've had conversations with athletes kind of about like, why do you, why is that the goal? Why do you believe that you can do that? And what will you need to do in order for that to happen? And kind of see if it's just this almost fun thing of everybody wants to go to the Olympics. Sorry, I can write that down as my dream goal. I know it's never happening, but I can still write it down. Or am I genuinely believing that to be true? And then like for me as the the coach or the consultant, I'm kind of looking at where that where in the process that breakdown is happening. So I can pinpoint like, Oh, here is, here is where it is. But yeah, goals can be tough. Cause you, the whole spectrum of, and you don't want to tell someone like, Nope, you're not gonna, not gonna hit that one. Like that's a hard conversation to have in itself. And it's not to say that we shouldn't be inspired and motivated by people who do unbelievable things. And I think Kira mm-hmm. D'Amato is a great example recently yeah. when she took 10 years off of running and, and had kids and had a career. And then her first marathon back, she ran a, you know, 346, which is a, a great time for anybody's, you know, for yeah. first marathon. Um, but clearly she was like her next marathon was like three hours. Right. So like, clearly it's not. <laughs> and then she held, and then she broke the American women's marathon record, like, you know, a couple of years later. So like that, I think, although it's, it's, um, it's wonderful to look up to people like her who have this unbelievable talent, who have a wonderful story. Like she is so far from the norm. Yeah. She is literally the exception, yeah. right? So we can admire these individuals and we can be impressed by them and be motivated by whatever we find motivating about them. But I don't think we should ever look at ourselves and say, well, if she can do it, I can do it too. You can probably progress far more than you believe you can over time, Mm -hmm. but it's unlikely that the average person is going to go from average marathon time finisher to, you know, record holder in four years, (laughs) right? No matter how strong your mindset is. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. I completely agree with that. So let's talk about this concept of mental toughness. And I'm sure obviously this is what you do. This is your bread and butter, but I get a lot of questions about how do I build my mental toughness, right? Um, when you hear a question like that, what, what is it that's actually being asked? Yeah. So I, when I get that question, I turn it right back around to them and go, what does mental toughness mean to you? Because it, there's not actually like a clear definition of mental toughness. And there's been some newer research that has come out, but I remember being in grad school and one of my classmates wanted to do some, I don't remember what the project was, but some project or presentation on mental toughness. And like my advisor was like that that's not really a clear defined thing. Like that's very broad. We can't really isolate what, what that comes out to be. Is that related to resilience, grit? Are those the same? Are they different? Like it can, it's kind of one of those weird terms in sports psych that's just not agreed upon. Whereas pretty like it's pretty normal for all of us to agree on like what confidence is or what self-talk is. Mental toughness is a little different. And then you have the version of maybe what's in research versus what kind of the general population is going to refer to it as. So I always ask the athlete back, like when you want to build mental toughness, what does that look like in action for you? Um, And that's actually, I think a great tip, like for coaches of understanding what, what their athletes are actually talking about, because we could have two totally different ideas about this. Um, But generally speaking, I think it really just comes down to kind of being able to persist in the face of a challenge. It's kind of the most general definition that works. Um, I like to look at it as really all of the different mental skills combined. You're not going to 
build mental toughness in one, you know, exact way. Um, but I think it's, it's one of those where you really have to figure out like what, what they're looking for with it. Cause it's, it's so kind of broad as a term. And there's, again, I think a social media thing of like, I see a lot with mental toughness around like the Navy SEALs training camps and stuff coming up of like, you know, never quit. You're tough. And I don't, I'm going to go on a little soapbox, but like, I think there's something with mental toughness where being mentally tough actually sometimes does involve quitting or DNFing or taking rest. And again, some of the messaging out there around mental toughness is like push through no matter what, will yourself to finish no matter what, how bad do you want those types of phrases? And I'm like, no, 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 (laughs) that's not actually that helpful guys. So I need to, I need to always figure out where they're coming from. That's an interesting observation about the way that it's messaged. Yeah. The, the Navy SEAL stuff, the 75 hard, like that, if you can essentially like power through an extreme circumstance, whatever extreme means to you, that the powering through is, is always desirable, right? Where, and people like, I had to talk about this on other podcast episodes, people like, uh, you know, they, they got into Boston and then they got a stress fracture and they're going to run it anyways. They're like, no, I'll just power through. And I'm like, that is literally the worst idea I've ever heard of. Right. Like you'll see people then be like, oh, you're so tough. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. Nope. And that's why I personally, this is like my opinion, but I don't like mentally tough as like a phrase or I just don't like it because of that type of stuff that goes with it of doing hard things that are borderline dumb. That is not tough. That is just a borderline or like way into the dumb territory. (laughs) Nope. Nope. That's not like we shouldn't be rewarding those, those types of things. All right. So then that begs the question, what, what should we be focusing on? Yeah. So in terms of just like a very, I'm a big person on like reframing things. So I typically just switch it to mental strength because I, I don't just a slight different wording with it. But again, so I'll ask athletes what they mean with it. And typically it comes down to things like feeling more confident, like being able to kind of push through when the voice in your brain is going, this is too hard. Not like, you know, we're in pain. We absolutely can't finish this. None of those types of things, but just, yeah, when you're at mile two of your 5k and your, your legs are starting to burn and you're like, I don't know if I can hold this pace anymore. And that little moment where your brain's like, we could just, we could just go easier. And you're like, Okay, like it's kind of it's pushing through that type of stuff. Um, how we get there is going to be very, very different for every individual. But it's really thinking about what's the race that you want to have? What's the goal that you have? And how do you get yourself there? With all of the roadblocks that are going to maybe pop up? How do you get to where you you want to go, whether that's in training or in racing, what's going to allow you allow you to get there? You've mentioned confidence a couple mm-hmm. times. Yeah. Um, Tell me more about that. What is it that we're looking for when we're talking about confidence? Do you mean like as an athlete or more as a yeah. coach? Okay. Uh, yeah, as an athlete. Yeah. So if an athlete's saying, if a athlete comes to you and they're saying all the right words, they're like, I want to build my confidence. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. What does that look so, like? So for me with with confidence, I'm real it's really like how how sure are you that you can do whatever it is? So it can be I'm, you know, 80 is just going back to the me running a three hour marathon today, I'm 100% doubtful that I can do that, right? If you say, like, how confident are you that you can run a 25 minute 5k today, I might go, I'm 85% confident on that. So it's just the belief of whether you can do it or not. And then 
I guess so many of my answers, I apologize, are going to be like, it definitely depends on the athlete. It is uh, very challenging. But Actually, the name of this show should be It Depends, but yeah. Right, yeah. <laughs> I know. Um, but a lot of it's going to come down to how you're talking to yourself about things. Um, confidence is very tricky. And I think especially with women, I think especially with women who did not grow up doing sports and maybe they have some imposter syndrome with being out there, or this is very new to them and they feel like they don't belong. So when I'm helping an athlete with confidence, it's really figuring out why they don't have it and what's going to help them feel confident on the start line. So that's an exercise I do with a lot of athletes actually is, you know, the beginning of your training cycle, like, you know, visualize yourself on the start line. What will you have done in training that's going to help you feel confident? And that one can help if you're a coach that can help you identify if they're saying like, I need to run 26 miles to prepare for my marathon. You can address that right then so that they don't, they're having this expectation that's totally different from you. And then they're at the start line. Like, well, I don't know if I can do it. I didn't do, you know, this distance in training. You can address that. But, you know, I had, um, I had a runner who was doing Olympic marathon trials in 20, I guess it was 2020. It happened 2021. I don't even know what year that happened. Um, And she lived in Denmark and it was very flat where she was. Uh, And she was coming to Atlanta. She was coming back home to run it and it was very hilly. And she was very nervous about the hills and she just was not very confident in her. She was like, I know I can run this time, but I don't know if I can handle it with the hills. And as somewhat obvious as it sounds, it's just going, okay, well, we need to find some hills for you to run. And when you're the runner, you might have, you know, your prescribed workouts and you're like, well, it's going to be a lot more hard. It's going to be a lot more challenging to do those on hills. But if you know that you're not very confident about that, just identifying, oh, I I probably need to do this. I need to practice my fueling. That's going to help me feel more confident. I need to actually do it. And then having the awareness of I did the things to help me feel more ready and prepared. Sometimes just that extra awareness, it like all builds on itself. You're like, oh, great. Here's all the ways I'm ready. It's not, we overcomplicate it so much. There's also an element here, and I think it's just something I, I, I feel like is something I see a lot, is this element or uh, sometimes the extreme lack thereof, trust. Mm-hmm. Whether there you di- a lack of trust in the process, a lack of trust in oneself. So it's kind of like the not, not necessarily the opposite of confidence, but like you can be confident that you put the training in and still have zero trust in your ability to perform because of the feelings or emotions or beliefs that you have about what you're trying to accomplish, which is interesting. It's a weird paradox to, to Mm -hmm. see sometimes. Yeah. And I, I remember the one year I, I think it was, I was training for my second Ironman and I did not feel, I had zero confidence going into it. And I was constantly like, I'm so slow and just all, all this super negative self-talk, all this stuff. And I think it was after the race, uh, I was going back through some of my data and I looked at it and I was like, I I had never biked faster in my life. Why was I so sure that I was out of shape and so sure that I was slow? And it was, for me at least, it was because I never looked at the numbers and I just was only going based on feel. And I had, you know, that season I bumped up from like a bike group, like level B up to level A. So I went from being a stronger one on the group ride to one of the weakest ones on the group ride or one of the slowest ones. And I, I just was so caught up in my own thoughts and feelings and emotions then I never looked at the the numbers to just go, wow, I can ride or run this, you know, this pace for this many miles. So sometimes, you know, keeping that training log and going back and looking at that stuff 
more objectively or even pretending like it's an athlete that you coach, even if you're not a coach being like, hey, if this was my friend and I was reading their training log, how would I feel about them doing it? And kind of removing your own thoughts and feelings from it can be a little bit of an eye opener for people. And that's, I mean, let's, let's, uh, I think it's okay to acknowledge that numbers can be this double-edged sword because sometimes people place way too much importance on hitting specific numbers, especially in like individual workouts. And I know it's a really weird concept, especially as coaches to say, like, I genuinely don't care what numbers you hit in a workout, as long as your effort Mm -hmm. was appropriate. And some weeks that's going to be the numbers you want to hit. And some weeks that's not. And like, that doesn't necessarily mean anything until we start seeing patterns in data. Mm -hmm. Right. So, you know, I see this a lot with runners. Well, they'll be having a a kick-ass training cycle, right? They're chugging right along. Mm -hmm. They're hitting all their stuff. And then something happens, life happens and they have, they bomb a workout, right? Mm -hmm. Immediately, immediately, oh my God, like, I don't know what happened. I'm losing fitness. I'm not going to be ready, you know? And it's like, well, you did 12 weeks of of awesome work and you had one bad day and you are somehow outweighing all the other work you did. Why one 60 minutes? Yeah. You know? Um, And why is, why do we see that? Why, why, why does that happen to us? Well, so our brains just have a tendency to focus on the negative over the positive. And every aspect of our lives. That's why we're going to do this. You're going to see it in just, again, every area. I'm trying to think of another example because I, I have one. I just, it's, it popped out of my brain, but you'll see this where we're just always focusing on what went wrong versus what went right. And that is something that everybody has. It's called negativity bias. And we are just primed to look for those things. So again, a little bit as obvious as it sounds, but we have to work to look for the positives. And that's where sometimes keeping that journal or even just like not necessarily a gratitude list, but writing down like the things that you did well, things that you're proud of to just show your brain they are happening. You are making that progress. And even if it's like I showed up and I did my workout, I fueled well today. You know, it doesn't have to be I ran at this particular pace for this many miles and that's why I'm going to do X, Y, Z. But just acknowledging more of the things that you're doing well or that you're happy with, that you're proud of that can kind of shift that, that focus away from that negative. I will say, I see that kind of catastrophizing the negative a lot more when you're closer to the race, because it feels like it means more and the nerves are starting to build, which means that we're going to just react a little bit more strongly. We're a little, I don't want to say less stable, but we're like a little bit that those nerves have kind of thrown us off our nice, like even, even kill a little bit. And so that happens. And I I feel like it happens a lot for athletes in like the two or three weeks before their big race, they have a terrible workout. And then all of a sudden, everything's ruined. If it happens earlier in their training cycle, I don't see people freak out nearly as much. But that's where we have to a little bit, again, depends on the athlete, but but kind of step back a little bit and look, what else have you done? (laughs) What else besides this? I see this sometimes in... Yeah. The final, final weeks of training when you are super fatigued, you've been doing this for a couple months. Yeah. It's the highest training load that you've hit, right? This is Mm -hmm. like, we are, we are now we're heading into the taper and yeah, maybe their last long run sucks or maybe they get into their taper and they feel like garbage and like that. We don't want you to feel like garbage, but feeling like you've been training for something for four or five months. Mm -hmm. Um, 
six months, like, yeah, it's normal to feel like you're not on the top of your game. That's what the taper is for, right? That's why, that's why we taper into race day, right? So like, there is a reason why this is just one, I say this, like your, your race is not made or broken by any one day of training. Yep. No matter what happens, like you can have the best run of your entire life does not mean that it is going to make or break your race specific training cycle just the same way that the worst run of your life won't break it. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, so I want to talk more about this concept of, um, I want to call it, it sounds like a very negative way of saying it. I'm sure you're going to have a, a much more professional way of saying this, this concept of self-sabotage about when people either, um, like it's a, a kind of, when I consider it, it's more of a, a way of, of anxiety, like anxiety expressing itself. So either we get so anxious before something happens that we like basically quit before we started, right? We set a goal that's way too low, or we kind of be like, I can't do this and like freak out and back away or however, whatever the, the thing is. Um, or we get so nervous. I've seen this too. And I emphasize so strongly in the athletes that I work with, like how important planning is for your race day, especially for the half and full marathon. Like you need to, we need to plan all these things. We need to plan our nutrition. We need to practice nutrition. We need to plan our race day out. Then they'll, and then they won't. And then something will happen that, you know, something bad will happen. And then they'll say, see, look, this happened. And like, so for me, that, that is, I think an expression of this anxiety coming out in the, out in this self-sabotage. Yeah. And a lot of times it's, it's rooted in like a lower self-esteem, which is a little bit of the trickier part is there's athletes that some athletes know that they are self-sabotagers and they know that they do that and they still struggle to kind of overcome that, but they have some awareness of that. Other athletes, if you tell them they're like, Hey, I kind of noticed this happened. They're like, what? Like they have no idea. So that makes it a little bit, a bit trickier. Um, but a lot of it, it's going to come down to it's easier to blame it on something else than the fact that you did not perform to the standard that you wanted. And that sometimes is going to come from the people who were raised in really like high pressure, high performance situations where failure was not acceptable. Like you think about kids, I, don't, I work a lot with like high schoolers right now. So I think about them like freaking out if they get an A minus, like for them, only an A is acceptable. Anything less than that is to them a failure. So when you're so used to performing and having to hit this metric, it's a lot easier to go. I, you know, I messed it up. That's why it didn't go well. Instead of like, I wasn't smart enough. I wasn't fast enough. I just wasn't good enough because that's going to challenge that lower self-esteem that they have. So it's kind of this like protection and defense mechanism. Working through that is a little bit trickier because self-esteem is more about how you see yourself as a person and your own worth versus confidence is like, can I run this marathon in, in this time? Or can I do this 5k? Can I do this task? Whereas self-esteem is just like, if it's low self-esteem, it might be like, I, like, I am just not a good person or I am not a good runner. I will not. It's more about your identity. So navigating those waters can be kind of tricky, but a lot of it is coming down to like trying to protect yourself, which is it makes it honestly, it pulls at my heartstrings a little bit. It's like, I don't want people to feel like that. So it's hard to just be like, get past it, move on. No, no. How do we, how do we help you? One of the things, I mean, one of the things I love about running is that it, it can help you build like all these skills, mm -hmm. whether you're explicitly trying to skill build in this way or not. 
Um, I mean, I personally know that I, I feel like my general sense of self-esteem, self-worth and my self-efficacy is much greater now as a runner, um, than it was before. And like, nothing's, nothing's really changed. I mean, we all change over time. Right. But it's just that running for me, this simple act of, I didn't think I could do something. And then I did it. It really opened up this door of, oh my God, if I could do that, maybe I can do all these other things too. Mm-hmm. But I think for some people, when they're confronted with this thing that, and then maybe there's that fixed versus growth mindset, they think they can't do something. They manage to do it anyways. And then write it off as like a fluke or a one-off be like, Oh, that, that I don't know how that happened. I'm never going to be able to do anything like that again. And it's like, well, Ooh, that's, there's so much to unpack there. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of it's coming down to identity as well, which is interesting. Um, I've seen this with people in so many different areas, not even just sports specific, but some, they have some fixed mindset about something. And even if there is like a solution or a way to get around it, whether there previously wasn't one or just, you know, it's, you know, whatever it is, they've internalized that identity so much that, it's really kind of hard to now see themselves as someone who actually could do that thing. And it, it sounds weird to say you've identified, you know, you've, you have an identity around like, I keep missing qualifying for Boston, but if you've kind of created this narrative, whether it, I mean, say you tried to qualify and you didn't, and then it just becomes this thing and maybe it becomes a big story for you on social media and people are engaging and you're, you know, you're documenting that and it's unintentional. You're not like, I'm going to become this, this person who just keeps missing, but it, it starts to become this belief that you have about yourself was I can't qualify for Boston or I can't hit this, you know, whatever it is. And we maybe slowly start self-sabotaging because we've so much become this person of, I ha- I just can't do this. I'm not good enough. I'm not going to be that person that even if you've done the, the training cycle and you can do it, you yeah, like totally forget all of your, your nutrition or something. And then they're like, oh, well now I can't go to the running store and buy any. So now I'm just going to eat like Rice Krispie treats. Yeah. Sure. Like, Which are actually a very like, reasonable running fuel. Right, I yeah. have to say, <laughs> if you don't mind chewing. Yeah. Yeah. You're like, <laughs> I just am going with something kind of rant and it's, but we do see this element of it's challenging how you see yourself. Even if that's not how you want to see yourself, our, our brains like to have an identity, good or bad. It likes to just know who it is. And when that is challenged, it does stuff to get you back to how you see yourself, which is why making change is so hard, which is part of why resolutions fail all the time. <laughs> making change is just really hard. I, I, it's a really good time to bring up, yeah, just change. And, and there's a lot that happens unconsciously, subconsciously yeah. in the way that we perceive the world, the stories that we tell about the world and our, our brains are unbelievable things. But one of the best things I learned in college and I majored in psychology, you know, is that our brains are incredibly lazy supercomputers and that they love to create these little shortcuts called heuristics, right? So basically, you know, whenever our brain is confronted with something that it can reasonably you know, take a shortcut around, it'll like just put the shortcut in place. And so that could be about almost anything, but one of those shortcuts can be these things that you believe about yourself. And so it's really, so you're not, you know, or for like literally heuristics can be about many, many different things, but so it's, it's really hard to change things that your brain has, like they're basically on autopilot. They just happen, right? They're there Mm -hmm. and they're really hard to get rid of, whether it's a a thought or a behavior. I mean, I think 
you know, anybody who's, who's trying to do anything with resolutions and they've decided that I'm going to run five days a week and lift four times a week and eat this many calories and get this much sleep. And it's like, well, that's going to fail because you're trying to change so many things about your schedule, your life, the way that your brain functions, like all these things all at once. Like you are, (laughs) it's not, you're going to set yourself up for failure. Right. So we talk about change I think we misunderstand what we're actually trying to accomplish and how to actually affect change. Change is not making massive, big sweeping changes to our life overnight. Change happens in these little increments. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to ask you about performance anxiety specifically, because, uh, in the, I work with athletes in all different capacities. And so I'm sure you do. And one of the things that I work with is athletes in a one-on-one situation and athletes in group training and group coaching environments, um, group coaching pitch join. It's awesome. Um, <laughs> In the past year, I have had a couple athletes that I've worked with in in both capacities go through what I would call borderline debilitating performance anxiety, Um, either around their, well, it's definitely around their races, but around workouts as well, where in the day or days leading up to the race or the workout, they are basically like, you know, um, catatonic, like paralyzed by fear. And, you know, I trying to explain that some elements of performance anxiety is normal. Like we, some people actually, we, we want to be in this state where we're a little bit amped up. It can help performance, but to be in this place where you are, are just like terrified, petrified, frozen, um, for days leading up to this one specific thing. First of all, like breaks my heart. Second of all, not something that we want to accept as normal. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, this might be an unpopular opinion or statement, but I, with, I'm going to make a general statement. That's not in regard to like your specific athletes, but if we're experiencing that level of performance anxiety, we might need to take a step back because it's, that should not, that should not be happening. And that is not normal, but it sometimes if it's so severe or just so debilitative for athletes kind of not to say just removing yourself. It's not the one, it's not like when you're injured and you're like, I'm just going to rest ice and then come back in three weeks and I'll be fine. You have to do something. But sometimes removing yourself from that um, can actually help because when you're experiencing just that level of stress and anxiety around even like a workout and then you keep doing it, you're just reinforcing that and you're making it stronger and worse. And so sometimes when it's that bad, we have to figure out what is going on here and how do we work through that? But it, it, I say that because I do see a lot of people who are a little apprehensive about taking that break. And I totally understand that. I, I was that person. I did not want to be told that I needed to take a break when I was swimming. That's how I found sports psych was through swimming. I needed someone to tell me you need to stop because I, like it was at a point where it was not okay. Um, so that's my like a little soapbox again on, on, on that. Of, <laughs> there's a point at which it is truly not helpful. Um, but I, I feel like a lot of stuff is coming back to the same stuff, but when we have such this, you need to perform and failing a workout equals failure, it starts to lead to a lot of anxiety with workouts. It's super normal. I think for runners to be, I hear this a lot with tempo runs. Like they're all really nervous about tempo run. Like that's fine. If you're nervous, you're a little scared with it. And we can kind of work through 
why that is. How do we reframe, you know, your self-talk around that? How do we manage some of what the nerves and anxiety are looking like? But if you feel like failing a workout, I don't even like saying failing a workout, but if you end up not hitting those paces and you determine I failed, we need to start reframing that at more of a concept than just like trying to think more positively about it because it's more your relationship with failure that's the issue and that's going to just keep happening even if you have a really great race that that anxiety is going to just keep being there and I'll see this sometimes too with uh, and uh, from a couple different perspectives I want to share my perspective as yeah. well um is that, you know, it, yeah, the, the tempo run things, I mean, there's something about long sustained yep. misery, right? Yeah, and I'm absolutely. sure as a triathlete, you can understand yeah. this as well. Right. But if I tell you go run 10, 20, 30 plus minutes at a moderately miserable effort, yeah. you know, there's a lot, there's a lot there. Right. So, mm -hmm. it, so sometimes I see, you know, in an athlete, they do the workout and, um, you know, let's talk about the times when it does it. Like we check all the boxes. Hey, it went really great. You know, yep. nothing to write home about there's kind of two, two things that I see and, or that I've experienced as well as an athlete. And one is that, um, athletes who they, they, they start to execute the workout. Um, they have this pace idea in their head of what they should be hitting for whatever reason. It's just not the paces they're going to be able to hit today, but they refuse to slow down, totally bomb the workout. And then like are stuck in this failure spiral of yeah. like, I couldn't hit my paces. I, I totally failed. And when I, you know, kind of gently point out that maybe if they'd slowed down like 10 seconds per mile, mm -hmm. they would have performed the workout correctly, which is a huge part of why I, um, program workouts primarily with effort based. And then mm -hmm. like some athletes also yeah. get time ranges. Right. But so, especially if you're, if you're self-coached or you train solo, you know, if you're thinking, oh, this workout needs to be at eight minute per mile pace, right? And eight minute per mile pace feels too hard and you push on anyways. And yes, it feels bad. And maybe you don't even finish the workout. And then you tell yourself, see, look, I failed. Like, I think there's a huge lesson to learn there. And it's yeah. definitely not that you failed the workout. Yeah. Yeah. And something, um, something that I've started doing because I, I love self-coaching. I just think it's like a fun little puzzle. Um, and especially with being, I'm training for a, a big swim meet. So it's kind of fun for me as a swim coach to be able to just apply and adapt whatever. But I had started to actually have to write in my, like I use training peaks. So I have to write in there and the instructions for myself, even though I know better, I have to actually write out like what, what, I, what the plan needs to be. So if I'm doing, I'll just put it in running. Like if I'm doing mile repeats, I used to be a person where if it said hit 7:30, if I hit 7:31, that was not good. And I actually had to have a coach that, you know, I was working with years ago, be like, any, like if you're within like this 10 second window, like you hit it. And I just didn't know. So that was very interesting. I think for both of us, cause he was a newer coach. So for him to go, Oh, I need to communicate this to someone like that. This range is okay. And that, you know, someone's going to naturally know that and somebody else isn't, but also I have to recognize that within myself of, I need to I need to, you know, adjust it to a window. Something else they've done is even write, like write out, do this for as long as you can. And then once you can no longer sustain that, it's okay to like run slower. If that's, that might not always be a great piece of advice, but sometimes it's, it just is hold it for as long as you can, then go slower. Sometimes it's, if you don't feel like you can hold this for 30 minutes, adjust what that is. And that's okay. 
I have a lot of athletes do what I call if then planning where I, they write out, if this happens, then I do this. So if I cannot sustain my tempo run pace, then I will do insert fill in the blank. And I have them do that before those workouts that they're like freaking out about so that they don't have to in the moment when their brain's already really stressed out, they already know what they need to do. And it can be, I will, you know, adjust it to like eight, 10 pace. And then they know, Hey, I'm doing it. I'm doing what the workout says because <laughs> they've already like written that out. So sometimes that can be really helpful um, with those things, but it is, it's a struggle sometimes. That's actually something that we do in uh, race day planning, mm-hmm. what I call, you know, uh, describe way, you know, what can happen in this race yep. and how you're going to address it. Basically, like, how do you build yeah. thinking through? I didn't tell my athletes, especially for longer races, you know, it's not, it's not, um, if something happens, it's when yep. something happens. Right. And we need to make sure that, yeah, Hey, <laughs> if it feels harder earlier than you expected, yeah. how are you going to address that? If you, uh, drop a gel, Like it Mm -hmm. could be, you know, and thinking back and kind of mining the training cycle for areas, rough patches and workouts or in races and kind Mm -hmm. of saying, well, if this happens in the race, here's what I'll do. Or Mm -hmm. if I go out too fast, how am I going to pull myself back and readjust? Right. So Mm -hmm. it's, you know, for a lot of athletes, um, we tend to think very black and white. I am either succeeding or I'm not. And there are, like you said, you know, not only is there's this huge kind of like fuzzy window around what it technically means to quote unquote succeed and what you're Mm -hmm. trying to do, but there are, if you give yourself kind of backup plans and backups to the backups to the backups, you can basically just kind of step down rather than just fall off a cliff. Yeah. And doing that stuff in advance, like when you're race planning is so helpful because I think every athlete can say like in the moment, we're not thinking logically. And the best example is trying to do race math right? That shows you like how dumb your brain is in the middle of the race. It's not even just like, oh, you're not like, you know, the most emotionally stable in that moment. It's like, you literally can't think straight at all. So when you know that and you go, okay, I got to figure this out beforehand. So I've had, you know, along those same lines with whether it's workouts or races, even adding in when, when this, when I start to feel like I can't hold this pace or when I drop the gel, even if it's like, I will, you know, get fuel at the next aid station. I also add in that element of what are you going to tell yourself? Where are you going to direct your thoughts? Because you might know what to do on the more like physical and tangible side, but adding in that next step of how are you going to kind of coach what's going on in your brain helps you to more automatically know what to do. Is that easy to necessarily shift those thoughts? Not necessarily, but if you know, okay, here's at least what I'm going to try. Here's the mantra, the cue phrases that I'm going to use again, it leaves less up to chance and it leaves less up to that like stressed out and tired race brain who is not your ally at that point. That's so funny. I mean, there are so many situations where like, you know, I'll, I'll be in a workout or a race or a long run or even athletes work with. And it's like, you'll make a decision and then think back and be like, why did I think that was a good idea? Like, why, yeah. why did I, you know, and usually it's like, skipping water stations or like what, a million mm-hmm. things, but it's like, it seemed like a good idea at the time. Like it genuinely did, right? Yeah. We're not in the race going, this is a bad decision. I hope not. You know, right. when we make these decisions and I, I talked about this recently, when we make these decisions in, in workouts, in races, we're making them with the information we have available at the time with the resources we have available. And your resources at the time are probably a brain that's a little frazzled, right? So, mm-hmm. um, when we make these decisions, we're in retrospect, you're like, that was really dumb. 
it did make sense to you at the time, right? Mm -hmm. So then it's like, well, how, if you continue to make these really poor decisions, how can we help you make better ones in that same environment? Yeah, absolutely. So I also want to talk about this, this kind of the second part of this, this, um, dread anxiety around performance is this idea of discomfort, Mm. like physical and mental discomfort. And I think anybody who's ever run or done any sort of endurance, (laughs) uh, anything knows what I'm talking about, but this is where a lot of people tend to, what I see breakdown. It's not necessarily in this. Yes. It happens a lot where we'll do something. And then after the fact say, Oh my God, X, Y, Z. But there's a lot of pre pre run pre race, or even in the run or in the race, like the, the discomfort it's going to hurt. And I don't know that I can handle that. And that's a huge thing for a lot of people that like, I don't, I'm afraid of the discomfort and I don't know that I can handle the discomfort when it arrives. And that, I mean, I, it's logical, right? We don't want to be in discomfort and discomfort here is not quote unquote pain, right? but this is a big one, especially for our multi-hour racers. Well, not especially I want to say 5k, anybody, anybody who's trying to hit performance goals. Yeah. It's just a different type of discomfort. That's (laughs) some are easier to handle for different people than, but yeah, it's, it's all just discomfort. Um, and I think something with that, that's really useful that almost sounds weird, but you have to, the morning of your race, you have to almost wake up and say, I am going to hurt today (laughs) and I am okay with that. It's when you fear that pain that when it shows up, or I, I guess I don't want to use pain, the discomfort, when that shows up during the race and you're like, oh, I really didn't want to feel this. And you kind of had this like, oh, it's going to hurt. I don't want to this and that. And then when it shows up, that's when we're more likely to ease off. But even having the just acknowledging and accepting, like for me to run the goal time that I have, or just to cover this distance, I think you could run a marathon as fast or as slow as you want. It's going to hurt. It's just, it's a long distance over pavement. That's not necessary. I mean, I don't want to say it's not fun, but like to your body, it's not always a <laughs> pleasant experience on your joints and your legs, but it's something where you have to just acknowledge this will be uncomfortable. And I want to accept that it's not, we can't hide from it. We can't run away from it. We can't, we can fear it a little bit, but acceptance is really big with that. And that's where kind of having that connection between the discomfort and training of long runs and not just like, Oh, and my body's going to be ready to do this, but understanding that you're training your mind with every single workout that you're doing. Uh, it can look different with every workout. I know I will give athletes, you know, you have a long run, you have a tempo run, you have an easy run. What is your mental objective for this run? And it can be my objective for this long run is I, when it gets uncomfortable, I'm going to do X, Y, Z. I'm, getting familiar with that feeling and knowing that I can keep going. And the more that that happens, the more that you know that even when you're uncomfortable, you can keep going. It's easier to kind of believe that. I see that with newer runners. They're like, no, I can't, like, I can't do it. Uh, but if you, you wake up that morning of the race and you're like, oh, I really like, I don't want to feel this discomfort. I can almost guarantee you that you're going to ease off when it starts to show up. You have to be willing and accepting that it's not going to feel pleasant. Yeah, that that expectation of how it's going to feel. And I made a huge mistake in my second marathon. I made a bunch of mistakes training for my second marathon um, in that I, I uh, got a new job and like barely trained at all. And oh, I paid for it. Yeah, um, been there. <laughs> but, yeah, but kind of this idea that we talk about 
setting the expectation in our brain, like it's going to hurt. And I, you know, had, had been just before I became a coach, but I would started reading about marathons and pacing. And it's mm-hmm. like, Oh, the first part of your marathon should be, it should feel, should be easy. And then and I'm, first of all, like, no, no part of a marathon is technically ever easy, no matter what pace you're going at, or what effort zone that you're in. And so that for me, my very first mistake was that like, Oh, my second marathon, I think I kind of know what I'm doing. I'm going to make this first part feel really easy. And so obviously it didn't. And I freaked out mm-hmm. and, um, in the, the rest of it felt, and it felt harder than it should. So it's kind of like, if we expect it to feel easy and it feels moderate, suddenly that feels hard instead. Right. Yep. And I actually, I'll never forget. This was a huge light bulb moment for me in my development as an athlete. Um, a couple of years ago, I was doing, I think it was like a track workout, right? So short, fast, maybe 400s or 600s or something. And I told, and I didn't want to do it. And cause I was afraid it was going to hurt. And I told myself, I was psych myself up. I was like, Elizabeth, this is this workout you're about to do. This is going to be the hardest workout you've ever done in your entire life. Mm-hmm. And I did the workout and it was challenging, but it did not. It was like totally yeah manageable, right? So just going in Mm -hmm. with the expect, not saying that you should like trick yourself every time that you go for a run, Mm -hmm. but just, just the simple act of setting the expectation for how it was going to feel changed how it actually felt for me Mm -hmm. in those situations. And that was just like an incredible, incredible moment for me. Yeah. Expectations are really tough expectations. And like the word should not a big fan of especially like it's like it should feel easy well should should's not really great but yeah absolutely when whatever the expectation is if it feels a little bit worse than that we start to catastrophize especially in the race because of the way that just kind of race brain is and then it's very quick to go from this feels a little harder than I think it should to all of a sudden like I can't hit my goal I now and then all of a sudden you're not even just adjusting your goal you're just flat out like dnfing like it's so easy to just totally fall off that cliff just you know sometimes having multiple goals can be helpful for that type of thing but being able to accept understand it's going to be uncomfortable I'm okay with that yeah and that's that is a I think it's really important to point out that that is a process that comes through experience um all of this all of these things are skills that you build and you're not going to master them overnight and yes some people genuinely start in a different place than other people, right? Mm-hmm. It's just like our overall level of fitness is just like kind of everything. Some people are going to have a natural aptitude for these things compared to other people. And so if you're looking at somebody and you're thinking, how are they able to do those things? They've probably put in the work, but they may have also just had a, a little bit of an advantage for how their brain was wired, right? So mm-hmm. it's it's not, again, can that fix versus gross mindset? It's not like that you can't learn these skills. You yeah. can, um, but everybody's starting from a slightly different place based on just who they are as people. Yeah, and one tip that I'll actually just give for kind of dealing with that discomfort is if there is something in your life, whether it's like your current life or maybe previously, that you were good and comfortable pushing through that discomfort, equating that to what you're doing now. So I have, um, an Ironman athlete who is, she started off as a runner, switched into triathlon. She's very good at dealing with discomfort in running, very bad at dealing with discomfort in swimming. And so what we did was we started to kind of say like break her swim and pretend it was the run. So when she'd have to do her longer open water swims, we would go, okay, this is like your long run. 
How are you going to handle that? And she, it was like a light bulb for her of just like, oh, well, I know how to handle a two and three hour run. Why am I feeling like an hour swim is really daunting? Because my brain is like, this is new, this is far, and I don't know what to do with it. I know I've done the opposite of that in taking like long runs and breaking it out into like, oh, you know how to swim a 500 free, which is extremely painful. But I could, I would break it into like, okay, this is the first 200 of it. And this is how it feels. And you know that. And it was a familiarity of discomfort. So if you have played another sport or dealt with some type of physical and mental discomfort, and it's, it helps you to kind of make that analogy that, that might be able to help you with your running of pushing through some of that. That's really fascinating. I think for a lot of multi-sport athletes, they don't often think of them. They think of them very separately. They silo mm-hmm. them and yeah. say, I do this. And separately, I even see people do this with, you know, road running versus trail running, yeah. which are kind of almost the same. I mean, they're technically I would, enough differences are a little bit different, but they're like, yeah, no, my, when I, when my, my trail runs, and this is a great example, I think for me is looking at, you know, runners who are using walking in their, in their training. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we put them on the trails they have no problem walking on the trails, right? They'll power Mm -hmm. hike hills. They'll take a walk break when they need to. You get them on the roads and walking is suddenly, they would rather eat lava than walk. And it's like, what changed? What, nothing changed, right? It's just the environment and the way that you're thinking about this sport. Mm -hmm. So I love that drawing those, like find the commonality, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So for the runner who is listening to this, so I want to ask you kind of two questions. You know, what are some, some simple things that you think anyone can start to do to build those mental skills that we've been talking about. And then when is it really a good time for somebody to get some extra help? Um, because what they're doing is not working for them. Yeah. So one of the easiest, uh, maybe not easiest, one of the simplest kind of tips and tools that I give everybody, it's literally like day one of working with me is we talk about really just reframing self-talk and working on self-talk and having an understanding with that. So one, we have to have an awareness of our self-talk and we start with self-talk because it really kind of bleeds into every other mental skill out there. So not to say it's the simplest to fix, but it's the one that's going to impact the most and just your life in general. Like it's a good life skill. It's, you know, part of what they teach you in therapy as well. Like it's very, very useful to have that as a skill. Um, but I know I commented on your post about the positive versus negative, and it's not that that's bad or wrong or anything, but sometimes being able to flip that into, is my thinking helping me in this situation? Yes or no. Because I know from my own experiences, when my coaches would tell me to think positively before a race, and I didn't believe the positive thoughts I was saying, it was useless. And then I went, well, positive thinking doesn't work. And I, sometimes I was like, I'm broken, like something wrong with me. I, it just, it was not helpful at all. And so being able to one, look at where are your thoughts helping you and where are they not? And I'm going to bet you, if you, whether you're an athlete or a coach, like if you're a coach and you give this exercise to your athletes, or if you're an athlete and you just try it and you get out a piece of paper and say like, here's where my thoughts are helpful and what they are. And here's whether or not, and then you go for like two or three days and you you go for your runs and you document what actually comes up, there's going to be a difference. And some of that is just, we need to build some awareness um, around what's actually going on in our mind. We have so many thoughts during a run. We're not going to remember all of them, but being able to identify what is going to work for you and what is not can help you really just 
like, say you have that tempo run and you're freaking out, you can start to identify when did you start thinking about the tempo run? How many days in advance? Was it a full week in advance? If you have, you know, the 12 week training plan, did you think about it as soon as you saw it? Like, oh, I start tempo runs on week five. I'm already worried because that's just going to build, right? And by the time you get to it, you're in full blown meltdown mode. So when did you start thinking about it? What are those thoughts? And you can actually like identify what the thought is and ask yourself, is this helping me? Yes or no. It's like one of those like papers, like check yes for this, <laughs> check yes or no. Right. And so that can be a really eye-opening experience for athletes. And by framing it as, is it helpful or not, or effective or not effective, it allows you to remove like the expectation, the emotion, because you're just getting a little bit more like clinical about it almost. And you're just going like, is this going to work? And sometimes you don't know. Sometimes you have to experiment with things, but that's a really good place of starting is understanding where your thoughts are and if they're serving you or not, because you're, it's going to be hard to change the thoughts that you like, if you don't know that they're not actually helping you. Um, so that that's kind of where I start people. And then we kind of branch out into all the different skills from there, but that that's going to really underlie everything else. And then in terms for like when to seek that additional help, uh, the answer is a thousand percent going to be, it depends. It, what we, what we see a lot is athletes typically reach out when something is wrong. And that's not necessarily, that's not the only time that you should necessarily be reaching out, I guess. Um, it's kind of, I guess I'll say the easiest way to explain it is it's similar to hiring a coach. You can self-coach. Absolutely. Why do you decide to hire that coach? Is it to just outsource it? Is it to get more accountability? Like there's so many different elements for why you're hiring a coach, but do you truly need that coach? I know some people are going to make the argument. Yes, but not necessarily. Like you can find a plan and do it. What are the results going to be? Probably not as great as if you hired a coach. A mental performance consultant or sports psychology consultant is kind of the same in that it's training your mind and it's it that person's just helping you do it in a more efficient manner, essentially. It's helping you be accountable. It's giving you someone who's going to be a lot more objective that you can bring your thoughts, your emotions, your opinions to and be like, this workout I totally tanked and process those thoughts and have someone who is not your coach, is not your spouse, is not your training partner to help you process those things. There's so much that goes into it, but we currently have this idea because I think of more traditional psychology that like you go see someone when something's wrong and when you're failing and when you can't hit your goal. And I know I will say I, in terms of more like recreational amateur athletes, I see them typically they come to me more so when something is wrong. Whereas the more advanced elite athletes, they go, I have this really big goal I want to hit and I know I'm going to need some support. So they're doing it in a proactive manner Whereas more of our amateur athletes are doing it in a more reactive, like you need to fix this problem, which I find very fascinating, but it really is just, you kind of want to like, do you want more support in hitting your goals and feel like you need that accountability, that objectivity and that extra support. And that's a really, I mean, I think it's a really good point about, you know, working with hiring somebody basically. Um, and I have definitely spoken with athletes over the years who self coach and like, Hey, it's working great for them, right? There are some people who mm -hmm. can self-coach highly effectively. There are some people who gain massive amounts of, of skill and experience um, by like reading the book or, you know, or like do, you know, I'm sure maybe there's somebody who all they need is to do your self-talk exercise and then like read a book on performance and then like 
they're good, right? Um, but I, I like your point of hiring somebody to help you is probably going to be the most effective way, especially if these are things, patterns you've been dealing with for a while, right? So if you're always, if you think you're doing everything right and you're working with your coach and your coach is legit and knows all these things, and yet there are still all of these issues cropping up that are preventing you from getting to where you want to go. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, nothing changes if nothing changes. Like it's time right. to actually take that next step. Yeah. And there's a reason why coaches have coaches and therapists have therapists and why actually like why even therapists, which I know we're not talking about them, but they are not allowed to work with their own like family and friends because they're not going to be objective. Right. And so we are not objective about ourselves as much as we think we are or want to be or try. It's just human nature. We cannot look at ourselves completely objectively. So whether it again, hiring a coach, hiring a nutritionist, hiring a mental performance consultant, physical therapist, you know, whatever that person is in your support staff, sometimes you just need someone who's not inside your head to help you and be like that person that you can talk with and work through whatever's going on. But to do it alone can be really challenging. So Shannon, if somebody is listening and saying, okay, sign me up. (laughs) First of all, I have to say your Instagram content is phenomenal. I think every time I see something, I'm like, like and save, like and save, like and save. So if you're not following Shannon on Instagram, you totally should. But tell people how they can find you, follow you, work with you if they're interested in that. Yes. So I am on Instagram. I am at Mulcahy Performance. Um, I will spell Mulcahy because I know that it is a hard word to pronounce um, and spell. So it is M-U-L. C-A-H-Y, Mulcahy Performance. Um, That's also going to be my website. So mulcahyperformance.com. I have an email list where I send out an email every Tuesday. And then on my website, there are not the best at updating my blog, but I do have some blog posts um, trying to translate some of my Instagram content over there. And then to work with me, I have three different tiers for athletes working one-on-one. So trying to give a lot of different options for, you know, what people are looking for. Um, I have a little application or interest form you can fill out to make sure that you're a good fit. Make sure you're not looking for something that's going to be more a sports psychologist and on that more clinical side. I always want to make sure I'm, you know, operating within what I'm legally allowed to do, um, you know, with my degree and in my side of things. And then we really just kind of get to get to work. Um, something I will give myself a little shout out um, that I like that I don't really see other people in sports like doing super often is I actually have an athlete portal where I give you exercises to do and complete. Um, so it's not just we have Zoom calls and we talk with each other, which we do. And that's great. A perfect way to process things. But I actually am going to send you different mindset exercises and activities that you can do on your own. I have a training journal for you to fill out every day. There's a lot that goes in. Um, I, I actually have signed myself up as my own client and it's, it's, it's great. I love it. <laughs> but um, if you're interested, you can find me on Instagram or at my website. And that's going to be linked in the show notes. You can find, uh, find Shan if you want to learn more. Uh, thank you so much for being here today. This is a really interesting conversation. I hope that, um, that people have taken away uh, hopefully a couple things from it. Thanks for having me. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Don't forget, you can always find and follow me on Instagram at Running Explained. And if you're looking for a coach or a training plan, check me out. Visit my website, runningexplained.co. That's runningexplained.co. See you next time.
This content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you have regarding a medical condition.